1: Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch. But just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
2: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the...
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1910, a 16 year old girl named Lydia Harvey walked onto a steamship, sailed away from New Zealand, and disappeared. In actuality, Lydia had been ensnared by two traffickers, who had promised her fine clothes, travel and luxury. But when she arrived at Buenos Aires, she realised that nothing could be further from the truth. A life of prostitution, exploitation and the threat of arrest loomed. As sub-editor Rhiannon Davies spoke to Julia Late, who has uncovered this riveting and unsettling story for her new book, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey.
3: So your new book details a case of trafficking that took place at the turn of the 20th century. To start us off with, can you briefly introduce us to the case and tell us who Lydia was?
2: Sure. Um, so Lydia was a poor working class girl from a small town on the margins of what was then called the White Empire. So she grew up in Oamaru, New Zealand, and she was born in 1893. And she was the illegitimate daughter of a single mother. And like so many girls from that time and from her social class, she was forced to to work as a live-in domestic servant. Um, And she clearly hated this this work. And while she was working as a domestic servant, she sort of tried to move out of that work and then met uh, a man who promised her the opportunity to travel, to have adventures, and to get paid more. And she kind of leapt at that opportunity. And then she was taken to Buenos Aires where she was forced to sell sex and then taken on to London where she was again forced to sell sex and then eventually abandoned and left penniless on the street, which is where the police found her and where she became the kind of star witness in uh, a, this case of trafficking that I found in, in the Metropolitan Police files uh, in London. So how did you come across Lydia's story? So I, f- I found the story in the way that most historians um find these little traces of stories which was in an archive file in this case in the in the, in the Metropolitan Police files at the National Archives in in London um, and it was actually one of hundreds that I came across so I've I've come across hundreds of stories that are you know similar to Lydia Harvey's though this one was a lot m- richer and more detailed than most so that the file was kind of intact and it was clear that it was this incredible international investigation that spanned a couple of years But at first, I intended to use it the same way that most historians use stories like these um, as an example or a a kind of moving illustration in a book that I had intended to be uh, a book about the wider history of trafficking in the early 20th century. But I just, I couldn't get Lydia Harvey out of my head. And I kept wondering where she had come from, what her life had been like before she had this terrible experience, and, and what had happened to her afterward. And At the same time, I was getting more and more interested in family history and genealogical techniques for historical research. Um, And I was getting more familiar with the growing number of resources that people were using to find out about humble and ordinary people in the past who had kind of been assumed to have disappeared from the historical record. And so I thought maybe I'll dig a little and, um, and and see if I can just find her beyond this archives page. And I hit a few serious dead ends. I couldn't find her birth certificate, and I never have been able to find her birth certificate. But I did find this one tiny newspaper story from 1909 about her taking part in a beauty contest in her hometown. And that's when I kind of knew that I had to keep looking. Um, it's just this one little breadcrumb cr- bread that uh, I followed, and it, and, it, and it turns out I was able to reconstruct so much more of her life than I thought ever thought I would have been possible um and then i started to think you know why not apply the same technique to everybody else in the case as well to to chellis and to marie the to the man and the woman who coerced and abused her um, to the police officers, to the social workers in the case, and of course, to, to the journalist who I later found out was Guy Um And it took ages, um, hunting through digital archives and physical archives in England, Scotland, Italy, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and Argentina, um, and and also learning a lot more about the local histories of all of these places where they'd lived and visited. But I think as the the details of their lives began to unfold, it, the book really started to take a very exciting shape. Um, and I was really, really happy to be able to tell, tell a story that went beyond just the example or the anecdote and really kind of fleshed out these, these people um, and, and the stories that, that they lived through.
3: So as a 16-year-old girl, what kind of life did Lydia want for herself? And how is this different to the kind of life she was traditionally expected to lead?
2: That's a really interesting question, because it's so hard to know what 16-year-old girls who didn't write anything or leave anything behind uh, really wanted for their lives. Um, and it's kind of easier to to think about what she was expected um, t- to want, what she was expected to want from her life. And one of those things was to become a wife and a mother, and before that, to be a hard worker, to be a domestic servant... Um, to work for richer people, to work 68 to 80 hours a week, um, and to kind of know her place. What I think she wanted was much more. I think that Lydia Harvey was uh, a young woman who dreamed of, of better and took a great risk in order to to try to get that for herself. I, she dreamed of traveling. She dreamed of um fine dresses of of a kind of bigger life, um, possibly even a life on the stage. I have hints that she really wanted to to be a performer. Um, and so she was really stepping outside of those boundaries that her social class and the time in which she lived had set for her. Um, and that was a major risk that she took. And in her case, um, it, it it ended up being a, a very difficult journey for her.
3: And this was quite common at the time, wasn't it? That a lot of people were starting to want more than what they'd previously been told they could expect in life. I was wondering if you could explain how this links to the idea of white slavery and the panic that really started to spiral in the era.
2: Yeah. So I think I'll probably start with the white slavery panic because it's it's such a, a strange term for our ears. Um, and it it's a really kind of Complex phenomenon. It was centered around this idea that young women, young white women especially, um, working class young white women, were being kidnapped off city streets and trapped in brothels and and kind of uh, uh, by by these kind of organized criminals. And the idea was that young women who were leaving their rural homes, and coming into cities as as domestic workers, as factory workers at this time, were all um, very vulnerable to these the, the kind of machinations of these evil men. And one of the things about white slavery was that it was framed as something that was um, a horrible thing that could happen to a young white woman, and very much in the context of the fact that young white women shouldn't suffer these fates. Um, And it completely ignored the fact that women of color were were also being subjected to exploitative labor practices, to enslavement, to trafficking. And it really centered on this idealized vision of the the white woman as as a victim of sexual exploitation. But it was also a, a really kind of Moral panic reaction to major changes in the way that women's lives and work were being structured in the early 20th century. This was a time of of an explosion of working class migration of globalization. Steamships are are cheaper faster people can get around the world more than they ever could before and the continuing dispossession and exploitation of indigenous and colonized peoples around the world was also causing a massive expansion in, in key industries so like manufacturing industrial farming mining and um, canal and railway building and also the global entertainment industry. And all of these um these new industries and expanding industries were really hungry for cheap and flexible labor. And young women fit into this uh, into this picture um, easily because they were cheap, flexible labor. And there's a huge rise, like I said, in working class migration, but also more women are moving around the world uh, more than they ever had before. And white slavery was in part about the anxiety that these moving mobile, Women was were generating um, you know they were leaving their traditional roles as mothers as dutiful daughters as domestic servants for the middle and upper classes, and they were seeking better lives for themselves they were looking for social mobility, and that caused an immense amount of anxiety um, because the, the idea was that they, they would be unprotected, they would be vulnerable to exploitation but they also wouldn't wouldn't be in their, what was supposed to be their traditional roles as young working-class women.
3: That's great. Thank you. So returning to focus again on Lydia, she's uh, encouraged to leave New Zealand and to have a new life in Buenos Aires. And she's led away by this couple that we're first introduced to as Marie and Aldo Chellis. Can you explain how they... Encouraged and enticed her to leave her life behind, and what kind of things they were promising they would give her in this new life she would be leading.
2: So this is—it's really interesting because even though I'm saying that white slavery was a was a moral panic, and and that a lot of the concerns about trafficking that were, were going on in the 1910s were um, inventions of of the press, of moral reformers, of of novelists. Um, Lydia's story is startlingly similar to these, these kind of made-up stories. And so what happens is she meets—she's um, in, she's in a lodging house. She's staying in a lodging house like so many young women who had left small towns and come to bigger cities at this time. And in this lodging house, she meets a man— who says, you know, would you, would you like an opportunity to travel? And, and she leaps at that opportunity, which is my first hint um, that, that that's something she dreamed about, that she was kind of dreaming beyond the, the, what was expected of her as a, as a daughter, a domestic servant, a wife, and a mother. And so she agrees, she goes, and she, she goes to what I know now was a brothel, but at the time, you know, in her, in her view, it was, it was just an ordinary home. And she meets Marie and Aldo. Um, Marie is a very stylish, beautiful woman, not that much older than herself, who speaks with an Australian accent but, but claims to be French. Um, and Aldo is this absolutely larger-than-life Italian man um, who she actually doesn't know is Italian. She just knows he's not, um, he's not Anglophone. Um, this completely larger-than-life Italian man who was an opera singer and a performer, and they charm her, um, and they they tell her, you know, we've made so much money um, in the sex industry. They don't. They they say they they're very open about what what industry they're they're suggesting that she get involved in. We've made lots of money. We're going to travel the world. We want you to come with us they tell her it's going to be an easy life that she'll have nice dresses that she'll she'll never want for anything that eventually she'll have enough money to buy a home um and move up the social ladder um which are all things that marie herself was able to do so they're they're not necessarily lies um but they 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 they, they what they had intended to do of course is to take her money and to use it for their own profit and gain um, and but that the promise of those things is what convinces her to leave, um, and that and the fact that her other alternatives were were very very limited. So in 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 New Zealand in 1910, domestic servants were trying to form a union, and their main um, their main campaigning goal was a 68 hour work week. So that was what they were asking for is a 68-hour work week. Most of them were working well over 70, even 80 hours a week, an afternoon off um, for a pittance. And so you, when you sort of consider the the promises that were being made to Lydia by these two people who int- who did not intend her um, any, any, any good things whatsoever, they were really looking to exploit her. But we have to put those promises in the context of what her alternatives were. And you can really start to see why a young woman faced with the choice between working 80 hours a week for very, very little money and going on this wonderful adventure um, on a on a shiny steamship to Buenos Aires, being told, you know, you, the work isn't that hard and you'll make so much money. It's very easy to see why why she would have been convinced to do that, I think. And
3: when she went on the steamship to Buenos Aires, what was that like for her? What was her experience like of leaving New Zealand behind finally.
2: Yeah. And it's this is another case where, of course, Lydia's not told me. Um, I've had to reconstruct this. And I've read a lot of, of materials about young women who were traveling at this time. Um, steamships in this era were, you know, when you're traveling third class, they're, of course, not that fancy, but they still have this amazing allure. They're they're, um, they were called floating cities and just incredibly exciting places where even if you didn't have access to the luxury that was available in the first class lounges, you could still kind of come within proximity of that. And you'd be meeting people from all over the world, um, just seeing incredible sights that she would never have gotten to see otherwise. Um, and so I just imagine that journey as being one where she was just so nervous, but also so excited to, to be traveling. And then the feeling of of getting off the steamship in, in in Montevideo, which is which is where the the steamship stopped, and then she got another one to Buenos Aires, and just kind of imagining walking into a, a city that was so much bigger than anything she'd ever seen, because she'd only really known Oamaru and then Wellington, which was a much bigger city than Oamaru, but a much smaller city than Buenos Aires. Um, so it, it just incredible excitement and travel and and those opportunities that she would have felt opening up um, before her. I, I think is is how that steamship journey would have felt.
3: And Buenos Aires at, in the early 1900s was a really bustling, vibrant place. Can you paint a picture of what it was like and what its main trades were for our listeners?
2: Sure. So Buenos Aires was in 1910. It was it was celebrating um, a centennial. It was kind of coming into its own as a real world city, and one of the, re- the there were several reasons behind it. But one of them was that the the rich kind of grasslands that lay beyond it were were had been violently seized from indigenous people and were being redeveloped into vast agricultural land, um, and this kind of agricultural land demanded a lot more seasonal male labor. And at the same time, you also have other kinds of industries developing, like manufacturing within the city itself. Cigarette manufacturing was, was one big trade, actually. And so you just get so many laborers, um, migrants flooding into the city. There's so much work, um, so much opportunity so much foreign investment pouring in. It's starting to cool down by 1910, but Buenos Aires still has this reputation as being just an incredibly vibrant kind of dangerous, uh, city of opportunity, having an enormous entertainment industry, uh, a center into which people just poured. Um, and of course, it's very, very famous for the tango. And this was, this was kind of at the height of, of the tango in Buenos Aires and, and, um, it it also if connected to the tango it had legalized brothels so um, the sex industry was legalized and regulated in in Buenos Aires including medically regulated so women would have to register be inspected um, by a medical doctor for venereal disease get a certificate and operate within the very strict parameters of of those regulated systems so it was it was really known as a as as a space where um kind of commercial sex was licit, where um, you, you kind of anything was for sale, um, a kind of very, very exciting, colourful city, but one in which people could really um, hit rock bottom very easily as well.
3: And sadly, we do see that with Lydia, don't we? It was so horrible reading your book, hearing about when they're watching a woman be injected with mercury treated for syphilis in front of them. That was Oh, that really shocked me as I was reading it, and I was hoping you could tell us a bit about what her experience was like because this is the first time she's engaging in prostitution, and this is where the dream really turns out to not be at all what she'd hoped for, isn't it?
2: Hmm. And and again, it's it's one of those things that I had to glean a little bit from f- around it because I don't know exactly how Lydia felt. And one thing to note is, you know. While I know that she had a terrible experience within prostitution, she was also comparing that to the work that she would be doing otherwise. So I think one of her biggest issues um, and her one of the things that was most harmful, in her opinion, was the fact that they took her money, that she had done this work, this really distasteful work that upset her, um, that she'd been coerced into doing and, and sometimes, as as you know from reading the book, forced into doing— and they pocketed all her money. And when you know when she goes to make her statement to the police, that's something she really focuses on, that, that she had not been given the money that she'd been promised. And um, so that really kind of makes the, her whole experience and everything she'd gone through even worse in her mind because she, she'd done it so that she could try to get more resources to make her life better and probably make her family's life better. Um, and then, for that to be withheld from her was was the ultimate injury I think in in her in her mind. Um, and yeah, so I think I think it's really difficult to say how you know how exactly she felt about the work itself um because so little of it would be what I would call um work because she was coerced into doing it and she wasn't paid for it um which is so different from other experiences including the experience of Marie who of course was also selling sex alongside Lydia but was getting to keep the money and continued to sell sex um bef- you know after this this case had closed still to come on the history extra podcast so many stories of of white slavery and of trafficking today um demand that the woman who sold sex ends up kind of degraded, diseased, and dead. Um, that's, that's the narrative you expect. Um, it's almost like the narrative itself is a punishment for her having gone astray.
4: We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelpcom historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash history extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know, playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Oh, Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT and NBA TV.
3: So we've touched a bit on this about the really incredible amounts of money that were available through engaging in sex work and being a prostitute but would you mind giving us some some figures or statistics how much money could people make
2: yeah i'm really reluctant to kind of give really strong statistics because this is you know there's enormous dark figures at work um here because the 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 amount that women were making wasn't wasn't being recorded um not least because Um, Moral reformers and people who were campaigning for the criminalization of prostitution had no desire for anyone to find out how much money could be made within that industry. And sex work then, just like today, was, was incredibly diverse. So some women were what you could call professional sex workers, and many of these women made incredible amounts of money um, for what you might guess was way less than 68 hours of work a week. Um, so, you know, by by rough calculations that, that I've done, many were making, um, you know, the equivalent of professional salaries. So the same amount that a barrister, for instance, would be making, potentially even more, Even a a sex worker who was kind of working an average amount, who wasn't necessarily having, you know, charging a lot and and getting a lot of high-end clients, um, even those women would be making far more than the police who were arresting them. And uh, other women, and this is why I'm kind of reluctant to give really firm numbers, because other women, meanwhile, sold sex only occasionally. Um, to make ends meet, to supplement poverty wages, to to, to kind of act as a stopgap during periods of unemployment. And still other women were, were forced to sell sex by abusive third parties and didn't see any of the money they earned, um, as in, as is the case with Lydia Harvey. Um, although I do think that this, this kind of um, worst case scenario was far rarer than the panic over white slavery had people believe. Um, so, yeah, so they, they, they were making a lot of money, but that has to be set as alongside the costs. Um, and the most common form of exploitation in the sex industry was actually created by criminalization. So both the criminalization of sex work and the criminalization of migration, all of which was really kind of hitting uh, a high point um, in, in around 1910 when, when Lydia Harvey's traveling around the world. Um, And this kind of criminalization forced women to turn to pimps and traffickers and dodgy landlords, and it enabled these third parties to charge significant fees, so for things like rent and protection money, for steamship tickets, for immigration papers. Um, and it also put women at the mercy of the police who could, you know, sometimes be kind enough or look the other way. But at other times, um, it, you know, they were a real target for police harassment, extortion, abuse and blackmail. And so a lot of the money that they might be making, they had a lot of significant outgoings because they were working in a criminalized environment. So it's really hard to kind of put put a clear number on it because it could be anything you know, from the modern equivalent of thousands a week, um, to the modern equivalent of, of just a handful of pounds a week and any given amount of outgoings depending. But I think suffice to say that, you know, it was a a way for women to avoid poverty. Um, it was definitely a a way for some women to make a lot of money. Um, and, and it was a way for other people to make money from women as well. So,
3: Aldo, Marie and Lydia decide to leave Buenos Aires and they migrate again, this time to London. Um, And when they arrive on the train station, you write about the volunteers who are looking for women in Lydia's position. Can you tell us a bit more about them and the efforts that people were going to who were afraid of this threat of trafficking and white slavery, how they were trying to prevent it?
2: Sure. And I think moral campaigners and social workers and all of these kinds of volunteers who were working around and kind of campaigning around the issue of white slavery were also a very diverse group of people with really different and and often directly conflicting politics and ideologies so it's difficult to sort of say they were they all felt the same way But the ones in the train stations who were working for what was called the National Vigilance Association um, tended to have a very conservative approach to the problem of exploited prostitution. They were overwhelmingly dedicated to the eradication of prostitution and trafficking and truly believed that um, making the buying and selling of sex illegal – And using the carceral state, that is police, fines, prison, corporal punishment, could achieve that aim. So they were actively campaigning for more criminalization, um, for more police involvement, for more prison time, even for corporal punishment. And they... One of their kind of branches of activity was to monitor rail stations and ports. And what they were looking for was women in, um, who were traveling alone, who they perceived were vulnerable, or men and, and women who looked as though they may be pimps or procurers or traffickers. And so it was a surveillance network in a way that supplemented the nation immigration system And while it was ostensibly put in place to help women and protect them from trafficking, it was overwhelmingly also a way to monitor their movement and oftentimes to offer help and rescue when neither help nor rescue was needed or desired. Um, And so I found it so ironic that Lydia Harvey is walking through these stations as this you know, if 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 there was anybody who was a kind of ideal victim in in the eyes of these moral uh, reformers, it was Lydia Harvey, and they didn't they didn't help her, they didn't find her. Um, and then in the next breath, I see them finding, for instance, French women who are coming to London to sell sex, telling them you're you 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 have been a victim of trafficking, even though the French women say I haven't, I'm, I've just come here of my own accord. And the National Vigilance Association workers are deporting them, are helping to deport them. And so it's this really complicated situation where they are claiming to help, claiming to have the best interests of vulnerable young women in their hearts. But ultimately the the most action that they take on these issues is to, is to deport women um, who don't conform to their idea of what a victim looks and acts like. And I think I have to concede that even even the most morally conservative of moral reformers believed that they were helping young women. So I don't mean to suggest that their aims were overtly sinister, although many of them were openly xenophobic. Um, But these men and women who worked for moral reform organizations also saw working class girls as subjects to be protected, surveilled and controlled, and not as individual young women with dreams and desires, including sexual desires desires and a right to autonomy. So they really saw them as, as creatures to help and reform, um, and their attempts to rescue these women from the sex industry were also, in essence, seen as, as rescuing the young women from themselves. Um, showing them what's really best for them was to go into those traditional roles of domestic servant, wife, mother. And so they ran reform homes, they talked about retraining and rehabilitation, which was almost always funneling these young women back into the domestic service roles that they had left. Um, And they actively participated in in what they called repatriation, but which I've just mentioned is actually deportation. And so the, the kind of rescue that these moral reformers were offering young women like Lydia Harvey looked mostly like punishment, and it's no wonder then that Lydia Harvey, when when she is in London, um, uh, you know, has just been abandoned by by cellists and and is penniless on the streets. She continues to sell sex because she knows that if she goes to a, a kind of one of these rescue workers, as they were sometimes called, or moral reform organizations, that she's going to end up right back where she started, which is working eighty hours a week for next to nothing. Um, so it's, you know, her, her choices were really limited and these moral reformers did absolutely nothing to expand those choices.
3: And in Britain, how did the police view
2: prostitutes? That's a a real, a real doozy of a question because (laughs) as (laughs) my answer to everything is, um, it was very diverse and, and it was because I, I think that the police had some really interesting attitudes towards women who sold sex because on the one hand, Um, they were some of the strongest advocates, um, for a kind of laissez-faire approach. Um, they didn't, they didn't like criminalization. They didn't like the role that it put them in. They didn't feel that the police's job should be to harass women on the street who are selling sex. They didn't see women who are selling sex as a threat to society or other people, um, And they really didn't like the position it put them in because they were just constantly moving women on, seeing the same women night after night after night. Um, One police officer described it as displacing water. But at the same time, there was so much pressure on them to clear the streets, to make a more moral city, um, and to catch these traffickers and stop them. And, And so some police officers really took a laissez-faire approach, let women kind of get on with it unless they were being particularly disruptive. Others, I think, believed in more of the kind of moral reform approach and and really felt like these women shouldn't be on the street, shouldn't be selling sex, they should be in reform homes being retrained and and shunted back into domestic service. And still others, as one of the characters in the book does, kind of makes the most of women's vulnerable position and, you know, extorts, the, extorts them, blackmails them, um, you know, that, that kind of way in which those vice officers, because this is the kind of beginning of, of the Metropolitan Police Vice Unit, um, the way that, that vice officers are often just a hair's breadth away from from the crimes that they are technically investigating. Um, And so they're kind of involved in the underworld um, and they need to kind of know it and be undercover in this underworld. And it often involves them committing crimes themselves. And even though I don't don't have the smoking gun for one of these police officers in this story, I strongly suspect that he was doing exactly these kinds of things. Um, So yeah, so because of criminalization, um, women who sold sex were very, very often the target of police harassment and police extortion. Um, because what were they going to do? They, you know, if they if they complained, it was so easy for a police officer to just arrest them for soliciting because it was a it was a crime that required no evidence.
3: And Lydia finds herself in the police's radar, doesn't she? Um, as she's connected to this case they're building against Aldo and another trafficker who goes by the name of Alex Barad. Can you tell us a bit about how they tracked her down? Because um, she was using a fake name at the time and how they connected her to Aldo.
2: Yeah, sure. And that's, um, that's something I know a lot more about because the police are one of the chief narrators of this story, right? So the way I found Lydia was through their record keeping and through them unraveling this case. Um, and it was it was led by a police officer called Ernest Anderson, Um, and he was a detective that was, uh, kind of made aware of this, these suspicions that there was a gang of traffickers operating in Soho and and what was then called North Soho. Um, and he started, he started trailing them and eventually found some women who were connected to them, um, and then tried to prosecute the case. But the problem was that the women that he initially found, um, were all, were, were all French women, and had all been suspected of or accused of selling sex in France before they had come to England. And because of these really powerful narratives of white slavery, which presented the problem of trafficking as one in which innocent, young, white, racialized as white girls were being duped and kidnapped unsuspectingly um, off the streets, It created an incredibly powerful image of who was a victim of trafficking and who was just a prostitute. And that not only was a kind of cultural image, it was also a legal, like a legally coded image. The law that that was used to prosecute trafficking at this time made it very clear that a woman could only be a victim of trafficking. Or on the other hand, a man could only perpetrate trafficking if his victim had not already been—and I quote—a common prostitute or of known immoral character. Which means that all um, the trafficker's defense lawyers had to do uh, was prove that the young women in question had already been of a moral character, and they they were able to do this fairly easily because they could play on all of these expectations of what an innocent. Uh, woman looked like. And the three French girls in the case didn't fit that image. Um, They had worked as seamstresses in Paris. They'd sold sex on the side. They had had uh, affairs with men, um, non-mercenary affairs, but that's still of known immoral character. And uh, in addition to that, um, French women at this time were also racialized as um, kind of suspect aliens in Britain and tended to be stereotyped as um, kind of some of the key players in the sex industry in London. And so the police officers knew that they had very little chance of having a successful prosecution if these were the three key witnesses and victims. And then they kind of cottoned on in a long story that I tell in the book, they 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 slowly cottoned on to the fact that there's another girl that um, these traffickers had been sending out onto the streets and that she's Anglophone racialized as white and um, younger and significantly more kind of conforming to this image of of ideal victimhood. And um, they they managed to find her via a couple other leads and find her eventually on the streets and are able to get her to, to make this witness statement and agree to testify against her traffickers. And it was really her testimony that that brought them down. Um, whether she gave that testimony entirely willingly or whether she was coerced into doing it, I'll I'll never quite know because that's not something that the police tend to admit um, in in these in these old police files. Um, but nonetheless, whatever what, what, under whatever circumstances she gave this testimony, it it was the she was the star witness in the case.
3: And a New Zealand reporter gets wind of the fact that another New Zealand national is involved in white slavery, and he um, goes a bit out of his comfort zone as a journalist and decides to report on it. Can you tell us a bit about how people in New Zealand, particularly in Parliament, reacted to the story that white slavery was on their shores?
2: Sure. Yeah. So the, the journalist, I didn't know who the journalist was for a little while because um, they don't, you know, this is before journalists have bylines, so they, it's just from our own special London correspondent. But when I looked it up, who was the the New Zealand Associated Press's uh, special correspondent in London at the time, it was a man called Guy Scholafield, who New Zealanders will um, recognize the name of, because he was a major player in early official histories, eventually the parliamentary archivist, uh, kind of a uh, big Whig historian um, in, in, in New Zealand in the interwar years, especially. But um, in 1910, he was a relatively young man and had got his first big posting. And he had come to London to, to report on foreign trade deals, on imperial tariffs, et cetera, And so it was somewhat of a surprise for him to be called in to cover this, this case of, of quote-unquote white slavery. And um, in reporting on it, he really ruffled the feathers of um, kind of the leaders in New Zealand, um, particularly the Prime Minister, because this was just three years after New Zealand had been granted dominion status. It was a very young nation, kind of forming its 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 new identity, and that identity didn't really leave room for the fact that um, trafficking was was rife in in Wellington. And so um, it kind of really uh, upset the the status quo, the kind of story that they were trying to tell about this young nation, and they went out of their way to investigate Lydia Harvey and to prove um, to to themselves and to New Zealand that she was not actually an innocent young woman. Um, and so that's why you get this um, this moment when Sir Joseph Ward, the Prime Minister, stands up in New Zealand Parliament and says that, you know, this young woman was a soiled dove before she left New Zealand, and therefore there's no cases of trafficking here. Um, and it really was just an incredible intervention, um, you know, and that really highlights how important this issue was politically, that it wasn't, um, it wasn't just sort of a, a side a kind of a, a kind of side issue it it was really lay at the heart of the way that nations were defining their identity. um and the the perceived morality or immorality of of women was was just such a central part of this story.
3: and going back to the case when they had Lydia's testimony, what was the result? Was Aldo punished harshly or did he manage to escape quite lightly?
2: I mean, I guess it's 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 kind of up to the reader to decide if he got his just desserts. I think I make it clear um, what I think about it, and certainly the police made it very clear that they thought that he didn't. He was not punished um, nearly enough because what happened was um, that they they offered him a plea bargain because they were very very concerned that if the case went to trial, and this is a direct quote. Because of quote the women and girls we've had to deal the the character of the women and girls we've had to deal with, that the case would fall apart. In other words, they fully anticipated that the def- his defense would claim that all four women in the case were immoral, had been of known immoral character, um, that they had gone of their own accord, that they had that they were that they were prostitutes. They were not white slaves. They weren't they weren't exploited, and so they pursued a plea bargain which they got, but it resulted in him only getting six months um, without hard labor um, in English jail, which the solicitors in the case, the the prosecuting solicitors, I mean, and the police thought was completely inadequate. But it was a very typical sentence. Um, It's a very light sentence. Um, There were women who had been arrested multiple times for soliciting who were serving significantly longer sentences than that. Um, And he was deported afterwards. But um, the deportation system, again, was relatively in its infancy. And he being being who he is very, very easily slipped away from that net. Um, So they deport him after six months. And then I find him a a couple months later back in Australia doing exactly what he'd been doing before. Um, So no, I don't I don't think he suffered very greatly. Um, at the end of the day, even though he was he was he did plead guilty,
3: and even though he'd been to prison and he'd served time, it really surprised me how he just went straight back into it and carved out quite a successful life as a tango teacher. Could you tell us a little bit more about what happens to him and Marie and how they do really seem to turn it around and be seen as almost
2: respectable citizens? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that they always played with that line. And then we have this impression of early 20th century kind of underworld culture as being entirely separate from the licit world. And I think we probably have that impression. You know, people tend to have that impression today as well. But people like Aldo and Marie really played along that boundary so they could appear as co- completely respectable and kind of working in licit industries having you know very respectable family and friends while also making so much money from from the sex industry um and one of the industries that they were most active in was the entertainment industry and this was um particularly in the early 20th century this was an industry that that really uh, sat on the line of the licit and the illicit um and where you found a lot of of people who you know would be performing theater for respectable audiences during the day, but also performing in nightclubs for uh, you know on the razor's edge of legality um, in the evenings, um, and they these the, they were they were characters like that, and they made the most of the fact that it was incredibly easy to reinvent yourself in the early twentieth century world. People were moving all over the place. They were you know, cha- changing location every six months, hopping on a steamship if things got too hot. There was very, very little coordinated international policing, so it was incredibly difficult to identify, com- you know, co- confirm the identity of somebody, of uh, you know, if they were in Australia and their criminal record was in Italy, for example, which is the case of, uh, in, in in Chalice's case. And... So they just really, they really milked that for all it was worth. And as far as I can tell, continued to do it um, very long into their lives. Um, and I often think about how they saw themselves. And I, I ponder this a little bit in the book, um, because on the one hand, they are really despicable criminals who who mistreated at least one and and quite likely quite a lot more women. But on the other hand, they are kind of charming, kind of entrepreneurial, uh, kind of Uh, yeah these sorts of people who who you can just sense from a very very long distance from a hundred years distance were absolutely larger than life and obviously saw themselves as the heroes of their own story um and so I couldn't I couldn't help but be drawn to them at the same time as as obviously recognizing the harm that they perpetrated it's a it's they're very fascinating characters and what happens to Lydia after the trial I think I'm not going to reveal too much because I think there's aspects of her life after the trial that I think um, you really just need to read the book to find out. But I think in some ways she returns to quite an ordinary life. And it's really important for me to underline that because so many stories of, of white slavery and of trafficking today um demand that the woman who sold sex ends up kind of degraded, diseased, and dead. Um, that's that's the narrative you expect. Um, it's almost like the narrative itself is a punishment for her having gone astray. And so it's really important for me. And it was, it was really um I was really welcomed when I found the second half of Lydia's story and and discovered that she ends up living, a, a, you know, a, a very ordinary life. That she she's not forever, um, she's not disappeared by the stigma. Um, but at the same time, she has just these incredible turns of fate as well. That to me show that every person's life has has these incredible stories within it. Um, you know, so on the one hand, she has this extraordinary experience. But on the other hand, her far more ordinary experiences are are just as interesting to me because they present this picture of of a whole person, a person who's not just uh, an anecdote, who isn't just a kind of um, morality tale, but who's a real complex human being.
0: That was Julia Late. Her book, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, A True Story of Sex, Crime and the Meaning of Justice, is available now. You can find a link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.